From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, guys, we are very lucky to have with us Peter Pomerantev, who is a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and also at the London School of Economics, author of several books, most recently one called This Is Not Propaganda, My Adventures in the War Against Reality. And this is a really interesting book and I think really timely as we record this on May 12th, 2021. We're seeing Liz Cheney removed from her leadership position in Congress. Peter's book, and we talk about some in this interview, really traces the history, the evolution of what we come to think of as propaganda. It also picks up on several themes we've talked about on the show before, where really the distortion is the points. And it's all about kind of sowing confusion over what's true and and what isn't. And I think that we saw that come to a head with everything that's happened around Liz Cheney. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I do, Jenna. So today, just this morning, uh, Liz Cheney was removed from her leadership position in the uh, Republican House conference. Now, usually that would not be particularly big news, but the reasoning behind it is really worth digging into a little bit. And the problem is not that Liz Cheney has strayed from uh, the rest of the conference on any kind of ideological matters. I mean, Liz Cheney is right in the middle, right in the heart of conservatism as we've come to know it from the Republican Party. But instead, they had to remove her because she will not go along with the lie that Donald Trump won the election. And is everyone else in the Republican Congress a liar? That's not exactly right. It's more that they simply no longer feel any particular need to conform to or to take seriously the truth. There are just other objectives that are just far more important. And whether that is their own self-interest in keeping the office or keeping the Republican Party together, however you want to frame it, it's simply that the truth just doesn't measure up in terms of being something that requires our allegiance. And if Donald Trump says that he won, then he won. And it doesn't really matter if the facts are otherwise. But think about how we got to this point a little bit, Chris. We've had something like 60 or 61 court decisions. We've had certification by multiple states. We had certification in the House of Representatives. And certification by Trump's own Department of Justice. Certification by Trump's own Department of Justice. The point I'm trying to get at is that there are now no arbitrators to them of what is real and what is not. Well, I think this is a really good entree into talking about uh, Pomerantsev's and his argument. Because, so just back up one second. Peter Pomerantsev, his parents came from Ukraine. They got out of Ukraine because they had to escape. And his dad ended up working for BBC World Service. So he has spent his life researching and being aware of Soviet propaganda. And he says that Russian propaganda is just different from Soviet propaganda. With the end of the Cold War, Russia didn't stop putting out lies, but they did it in a much different way. What the Soviets were lying, right? They would say that the CIA caused AIDS and they would give this argument about how that happened. But what the Russian propaganda does is it simply just 
throws out so many claims that it's impossible to know for anybody just listening to have any sense of what the truth could be. Yeah, what I read him saying is that what the Russians had perfected through propaganda, or, you know, what we saw in what Orwell talks about, I think it's at the end of the book, right, where Winston Smith has to say two plus two equals five, Mm -hmm. because that's what the party says it is. Right. So these techniques have been around for a very long time. The reason I found this book kind of chilling, actually, was that these techniques that he is arguing had been perfected over years by totalitarian leaders of all types are now easily facilitated through social media. And so now it's all over the place. Yeah, so I think that is a very good outline of some of Pomerantsev's arguments and how they relate to what's happening currently. So let's uh, go now to the interview, then maybe come back and talk about how we find our way forward through this mess. So let's uh, go now to the interview with Peter Pomerantsev. Peter Pomerantsev, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure is all mine. So I was struck by many things in your book, This Is Not Propaganda, but one of the things that jumped out at me the most, and I think a good place to start this conversation, is some of what you describe about what happened in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union in the the 90s and into the early aughts, and how some of those trends have spread to the West in more recent years. Can you give us the lay of the land, you know, what happened there, and then how have some of those trends spread further throughout the world? Sure. I mean, you would understand, Russia in the early 1990s sort of goes through an early version, a lot of the kind of cultural and cultural political cataclysms that we then see play out in what we used to think of as the West. And, you know, what do I mean by that? I mean, why did the future arrive first to Russia? I mean, by 1993, all kind of versions of a coherent future that everyone can believe in have fallen apart. First, communism that no one really believed in anyway. And then the kind of, you know, euphoria around democratic capitalism, making Russia successful within three, five years, which is literally what some intellectuals thought, many intellectuals said, is obviously a complete mirage by 1993. And at the same time, there's all kind of versions of the future, all kind of rational versions of the future run out. You have this massive sociological change where all the old social identities and the old professions and the old industries by which people defined themselves and understood themselves fall apart as well and disappear. And people are just in this weird flux. And it's reflected in the art of the period, in the poetry of the period, which starts grappling with what some of the kind of modern artists at the time call kind of a sort of the collapse of meaning. Words don't mean anything anymore. The words left, right, communist, capitalist, middle class, proletarian, it's all gone. People are just in this crazy flux. And the political propagandists at the time realize they can't sell people anymore on like here's a vision of the future, or here's left-wing ideology or right-wing ideology. And they turn to a bunch of stuff which we're now very familiar in the West. Nostalgia starts to dominate with no vision of the future. Nostalgia conquers everything. 
And when facts stop delivering any kind of coherent version of the future, there's a rebellion against facts. And you have these troll-like politicians emerged who are really, you can't tell whether they're jesters or menacing. And it's very interesting listening to the speeches of somebody like Zhirinovsky from 1993, which almost word for word and all tone for tone anticipate Trump. But also the reaction of the people, you know, it's just this kind of massive carnivalesque trolling that you really can't quite put your finger on in terms of any ideology. And where truth, it just goes out the window. Because if, look, if the facts aren't telling you that your life is getting better, who the hell needs facts? And there's almost kind of a carnivalesque rejection of factual language. And perhaps the last kind of ingredient that's important is that because there's no left, right, propagandists start having to kind of create elections And every time they do so in order to get a majority, it's not around kind of left or right or even different classes. It's around creating some idea of the people. Yeah, it's this kind of pop-up populism that we're all so familiar now. And you've got to kind of create the people anew every time. You've got to work out the various kind of different, often private grievances people have and say, I'm going to be the thing that solves this problem for you. But really on an emotional level, the propagandists I talk to in looking at around the 96 and 99 election campaigns, they were like, you know, in 1999, in Putin's first election, we gathered everybody around the idea that they were left behind. And this was their last chance to get it right. So literally gathering the left behind, which was a completely disparate group of people. It was intellectuals and KGB. It was military people and environmentalists, you know, people with nothing in common, but they just had a lot of grievance. And of course, we see so much of this today. And and, then part of the book is trying to work out why. And I suppose the very tenuous conclusion that I come to is that we're sort of going through a lot of the spasms that Russia went through very suddenly in the 1990s. And we're going through them much slower. And I'm not saying the result is going to be the same. But that sense of a loss of the future or a coherent future disappears for most people after 2008. We know a lot about how whole industries have disappeared, how social roles have disappeared, Social media has kind of fast-forwarded that sense of instability, that sense of churn. And a lot of the context is similar, and maybe in a deeper way. We kind of constructed our idea of the future in competition against the Soviet Union. There was a dialectic going on there. We kind of relied on each other, saying, no, communism is producing a better society. No, capitalism is. And when that competition collapses, we basically get left with one version of the future, some sort of globalized capitalism, and then that kind of runs out of juice. I'm not saying that the West is going to be like Russia, even though I think there's something to learn about what happened in Russia. But we're going through some of those crises that Russia went through. I very much hope we'll solve them differently. I'm not saying we'll end up with a Putin-like figure. You know, we're very different systems. Right. And on that point about solution, I mean, there's there are any number of things we could talk about as far as platforms and algorithms and all these things. But taking a step back from that, it seems like a lot of these solutions we hear about are kind of on the supply side of disinformation, right? We have to like limit the amount of it people consume. But to that point about facts no longer offering a, a vision for the future, I'm, I'm wondering whether there's a place to address this dynamic more from the demand side, so to speak, of how to work toward a place where facts can deliver in a different way than they have in recent years. Yeah, look, there's a beautiful book to write, which maybe I will when I've got a bit more time, maybe in my more autumnal years, 
which I'm rapidly approaching, I'll write the big book about the relationship between the medium and the message. Because I don't think it's an either or. People sometimes say, it's technology, no, it's culture. And in my book, I kind of, you know, it's both. And it would be wonderful to explore in detail how they reinforce each other and how the medium changes with the message and the message with the medium. But the point I'm getting to is, as we think about how do we make our public discourse more future-orientated and less about these kind of populist identities, yeah? less about us and them and more about collaborative thinking. There's a big technological thing to that. The way the technology is designed around us is catnip for the sort of propagandists that I just talked about, which I saw in Russia in the 1990s before the internet. But when they look at the internet, they're like, oh my God, if we had Facebook in Russia in the 1990s, it would have been so much easier. I mean, it's almost as if the social media even was created within a cultural paradigm. I'll give you a silly example, which I don't take seriously, but I have fun with sometimes. The reality show was very much a product of the 1990s. You know, the reality show is very much a product of this period when there's no ideologies, when personality and performance becomes everything. The rise of a performance-based post-ideological politics coincides with the reality show. And I often feel that Zuckerberg and all these other geniuses who invented social media, they were so full of the culture of the reality show. They then created social media as one massive reality show, which rewards performance and aggravation and low-level cheap conflict and doesn't reward a culture of not even serious, but just debate about ideas. So already, I think, a sort of certain cultural paradigm. Politics had created a cultural paradigm. The cultural paradigm produced a technological model. That technological model then reinforces the politics. So these things are deeply, deeply, deeply intertwined. So yeah, we have to think about how do we redesign social media or create new social media that aren't based on the principles of the reality show. It just strikes me. I've never actually written that article. I should write that article. It's just hit me. Yeah, no, totally. In your recent Atlantic article with Ann Applebaum, you, I don't know if this was your reference or Anne's, but one of you cites John Perry Barlow from The Grateful Dead talking about the early days of the internet and a vision for that. Do you think it was social media that put an end to that vision and kind of the ethos around it? Or was it already in place before that? I have to be careful here. I'm not really a techie. So we interviewed a lot of techies for this piece. And a lot of it was us actually holding brilliant tech minds like Ethan Zuckerman or Ronaldo Lemos to the wall and saying, can you explain this for a historian and an English lit guy, please? Like, can you put this into our language? Which takes a lot of pushing to get this out of the kind of Wired magazine framework. Mm -hmm. Why is a great magazine, but like it took us a while. And, and I think Jonathan Sitrin at Harvard has written about this as well. There's this turning point in 2008, isn't there, which comes from a confluence of design, the introduction of the iPhone and smartphones, changes in the advertising model, the introduction of the news feed, which transformed the internet from the John Perry Barlow dream of blogs and exchange of ideas and a lot of philosophers were very excited about the first iteration of the internet because it seemed to be a return to the public sphere that people have dreamt of before five-channel TV. And then it gets homogenized and it gets pushed into five platforms. And that happens on the level of the wiring, the design, and also the apps that you see. So now it is reduced to four or five apps. It feels like a mall with four or five stores instead of a beautiful bazaar with many, many different things. So I think that that, that transformation is something that happened around 2008. You know, I think before that, there was a potential for something very, very different. And it, there can be again. I think this is a moment. And it's just up to us to create the environment where 
something less homogenized, less based around just taking up your attention in the most kind of tabloid way possible can flourish. But you need interventions for that as well. And to what extent does a more democratic internet need to be the same from country to country, place to place? I mean, we're already starting to see some changes and shifts with the European countries versus the US. Different conversations are already happening. So how much is a global coherence necessary for success, do you think? I think it's very important. I think democracies have to reach a baseline of like a lowest common denominator of what they agree on. And then you're always going to have different First Amendment traditions. You know, in Germany, you can't use a Nazi symbol. In America, you can. I mean, it's just different contexts, different traditions. I'm not worried about that. We had the same thing with old media as well. We've got to agree the basics, though. So Facebook have said they want human rights to be at the core of their content moderation regulation. So what does that mean? Do we need online human rights courts? I don't know, I've been talking to people like Ecuador and Azerbaijan recently, and they're like, when they get attacked on Facebook, they can use personal connections, try to appeal to somebody at Facebook. There shouldn't be. There should be some sort of system of basic human rights online that you have immediate recourse to and that can support you. And if you're being attacked in Burma or in Birmingham, Alabama, that should just be a system. You shouldn't rely on a big company. It should probably be some sort of online system of e-courts that help in those sort of situations. That's the content moderation bit. And a lot of people are concerned with that because that's their daily harassment, existence, and so on. But then there's more subtle and more meaningful things, probably like oversight of algorithms. Again, look, we have to move towards what some people call a digital republicanism. The power can't all be embedded within a few companies. You need different sorts of oversight for different sorts of things. I don't think it's one magical oversight body. I think e-courts for content moderation, making judgments on that. You need some sort of system that regulates whether algorithms are, I don't know, showing racial or commercial bias against people and so on and so forth. I don't think there's one solution. I don't think we'll have like one. There should be many things. Just as in our lives, we have different forms of oversight and regulation depending on what situation we're in. I've got to say, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. So like, you know, I get lost pretty quickly when we get into the details. But whenever I do talk to lawyers, there isn't conceptually a huge challenge around this. It's just a case of starting to do it. And that means changing the power kind of balances and introducing regulation. You mentioned uh, Ethan Zuckerman before. I know he's one of many very smart people who are, are trying to figure out what a new, more democratic internet looks like and thinking about civic information architecture and a, and a digital public square. But I feel like a lot of these ideas are still kind of in the nerd stage, for lack of a better term. If we were all in like a high school cafeteria, it'd be like the nerds table over here figuring all this stuff out while like the jocks and the cheerleaders are like snickering at you from the other side of the room or something. But at any rate, <laughs> I would put myself in that camp too. I think most people listening to this show would probably put themselves at that nerds table. And so we kind of get this as people who are interested in and concerned about and passionate about democracy. But how do you start to bring these ideas out to people that just don't even realize these bigger issues that are at play? How do you think about framing these ideas in a way that people who aren't as nerdy as all of us are can understand? We all look to historical examples. It's not hard in, I think, in Europe and Britain, because we have the example of a public broadcaster. So you go, okay, we need a social media that's like the BBC. It doesn't eat up your data for profit. You go in there to do loads of useful things, like lots of civic things, like, I don't know, getting the road fixed or 
getting sharing your medical data for better health service. I think in countries where you have a kind of public broadcasting tradition, it's still a leap. We've got to explain to people this wouldn't be content. This would be a space that is run along those principles, uh, not commercial principles. So I don't think that's it's not a hard conceptual sell I find in in Europe and America. The question is, do people feel that it's a burning need? Now, that's a very interesting one. When do people start caring? We, and this is my little think tank at Johns Hopkins University called Arena that Anne Applebaum and I run, we recently launched a project called The Good Web, where we want to think about two things. One, what does a good internet look like? And people like Ethan Zuckerman obviously helping us think about how to frame those questions. But then what I really want to get into is trying to find out when people care. And a lot of the time, I think people will care about things like bullying or their kids. I've got kids. You know, I'm very worried about what they're doing online. So I think that's a big thing. I think for a lot of people, start with that. What are my kids up to? But then they might care on very practical things as well. Is this a space to improve your health service? Is this a space where we can fix the local neighborhood, I don't know, tennis court or whatever? I think that kind of usefulness is very important. But we have to think very deeply. The idea that people don't want the other stuff is flippant and arrogant. There's a reason why reality shows, tabloid news, the Facebook algorithm works. They, they are plugging into very real human needs of identity and attention and applause and someone to hate and someone to love. I mean, these are big, big things that we can't just ignore and say, oh, no, you should be more rational. We have to think about what are the deep, deep needs that we can satisfy. We have other deep needs apart from being assholes on Twitter, even though that's a very deep need. And I respect everybody on Twitter for wanting to satisfy that need. Everybody wants to have the space to be unpleasant to people. Fair enough. But apart from these spaces of perverted trauma that social media has become, we also have a need for collaboration, for building things together. It's deeply rewarding. It's inspiring. I'll go back to the reality show example. When reality shows started in Britain, and a reality show producer told me this, a reality show started in Britain, the first episodes of, I think it was even The Apprentice, yeah, didn't go according to plan for the producers. All the people got on and worked together to achieve a common goal, because that's quite a deep instinct. To which point the producers were like, well, this is not what we want. So they started casting assholes. And in The Apprentice, you have the, really a very early idea or ideal that is then very common on social media and is, is eventually in politics of the asshole taking center stage. It's a guy called Nasty Nick, season two of The Apprentice of Britain, cast by the producers in order to say, hey, enough of this collaboration stuff. Let's put some assholes in there. Let's engineer nasty low-level conflict, which I've got to say did well for ratings. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, that's not the only thing that we need. We need other things as well. And we could think of a design of social media that was based on the first season of The Apprentice, not season two. And we have that, by the I way. Mean, the other... We have that. There are platforms that do that. That brings up another question I've been thinking about, which is that democracies have always struggled with whose voice gets to be heard and at what level, and there's these power dynamics, is do you see a way to address some of those larger dynamics as part of this reimagining of what the internet, of what our online 
lives look like this bigger reset that you've been articulating? Or is that perhaps too much to think about that we can fix everything that's wrong about the internet and also fix systemic racism and and all of the kind of inequities that have been part of democracy? I think we have this tremendous chance. I think that we have a tremendous chance. I mean, even with the kind of weird way that social media operates, we've seen sort of like amazing things happen, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too in the West, but also in in authoritarian countries. So if we had ways of furthering those discourses, which worked better than Facebook and Twitter too, because they're not designed for that. They're designed for like sucking data and doing advertising. But in this kind of like distorted environment, we see how it can be used to positive effect. Think about how well it could be in, in something that was used differently. Oh, that was designed differently with a different aim. So I didn't have that kind of the same, I don't know, I'm going to come over as a lefty when I'm not really. This, but I do think we need spaces in our discourse that aren't all about profit, basically. And I think history has shown that, whether it's the village green or the agora in ancient Athens, you know, there's nonstop the search for kind of a space where, okay, for a public sphere, I mean, that's the definition of it, where, where these things can happen. And I do think I can't just have commercial priorities built within it. We already see great things happening. Think how much better it could be. There's massive progress already happening. I really like a concept that a Canadian-British academic called Heidi Tsvorek put forward. Expanding free speech to the idea of free, full, and fair speech. Now, I really like that one because I think just free speech has been kidnapped and perverted in so many ways through to authoritarians unleashing bots and troll armies at people and saying, oh, that's free speech. I like this concept of full, free, and fair speech. I mean, it keeps the free bit. That's a kind of a sine qua non. The full one, I think, is a lot about bringing people in who are marginalized or bringing new voices in, making sure that everything from internet design through to access (laughs) at the end of the day is full. And then fair. Fair is the tricky one, you know. Fair is the one that we're going to have 100 philosophy seminars on. But I think it's the key one because it's about once you're in that debate, that you get a real voice and that the algorithms don't crush you, that harassment doesn't push you off. It's a really, really hard one, fair, but I, maybe because I am I was brought up in England, I'm rather fond of fair as a loose but rather beautiful concept. So I don't know if it's even translatable into other languages, but I like that idea of full, free and fair. That's what we should be aiming for. And maybe we should think about of our internet discourse as not just free, but also free, full and fair. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I'll have to look more into that. So we started this conversation talking about nostalgia. And nostalgia, in addition to being a longing for something in the past, is also sometimes seen as a rejection of the present. And I'm wondering, thinking about the spread of nostalgia from Russia through to the the West, what is it that people are rejecting or reacting negatively to? And is it the same from one place to another? Not at all. I mean, in my book, I like started with the 90s in Russia when it was still cable, still TV. I don't know. I think the technology is almost an expression of that. You know, the the technology found the zeitgeist uh, rather than the technology created the zeitgeist. You know, they've kind of come together. And yeah, all I can do is diagnose this situation with you. And I largely agree with everything you said. But then the solutions that I look to are very small. But there's a lovely Russian historian who I write about a little bit in my book called Gefter. And Gefter was a poor, he was a dissident in Soviet times. And he was then Russia's first historian of the Holocaust, because the Holocaust wasn't really talked about in the Soviet Union. The focus was all about 
Soviet prisoners of war and stuff like that. It wasn't really about Jews when covering the Second World War. So he was the first Russian historian of the Holocaust. And in the early 1990s, I think as a reaction to the great Fukuyama essay, the end of history, he says, yes, it is the end of history, but that's not a good thing. While we had history, we had space for improvement. We were going somewhere. We still had an ideal to get to. And if history stops, if history runs out, then there's no dynamic of development anymore. Yeah. Uh, and he saw it as a crisis and he kind of foretold this kind of future world, which would be full of these kind of like impossible things squashed together without any perspective. And one of his main pupils, who's a bit like a Plato, because we don't actually, Gefta never wrote any of these things down. We only have it from his pupil, who then goes on to be Yeltsin and then Putin's main spin doctor and propagandist for a long time, as if fulfilling the prophecy of his teacher. <laughs> kind of described it like, you know, the world that we're in now with ISIS and the Nets People's Republic and San Francisco tech bros living next door to essentially favelas in Tenderloin, this kind of impossibility of everything crushed together with no sense of direction, this kind of like collage of stuff, all pushing each other out of the present as kind of, you know, that world become real. And he didn't think there would be any solution to this. He thought this is just the world we live in and the successful people will be the ones who can negotiate this kind of, I don't want to use the word chaos, this futureless presence, this world without a sense of perspective. And that was just it. That's just where we've got to. I'm more positive. Uh, I don't know why, but I think we enter these crises regularly. It might almost be cyclical. And they do often seem to come, whether we say technology is the cause, but maybe new technology brings out these kind of cultural crises that were sort of already there. So whether it's the emergence of print or whether it's the emergence of radio or of newspapers, they always kind of like some sort of rash bring up all these problems that were under the surface and explode the present. And it takes a while for the forces of not killing everybody, whatever you want to call those forces, getting their act together. So this might well be cyclical. You know, this might be well something that repeats and we build it again and it collapses again and we build it again and it collapses again. And that's, we're just in one of those moments of disruption, which must be similar to, I don't know, the emergence of prints in the 30 years war in Europe. And that's probably, a, again, what came first? The rot inside the old feudal and religious system and print just brought that out? Or was it print that catalyzed a crisis that was already there? But these crises come together. So we're in that moment. I think the danger is that when you look at these moments historically, the crisis can be pretty bloody bad. <laughs> so maybe our job is to mitigate the crisis, knowing how bad it can get. Yeah. You know, as we've been talking, there are clearly no easy solutions, easy answers, quick fixes here. And as somebody who is involved in these groups and collectives and, and organizations that are trying to figure out how to tackle these very big problems, how are you prioritizing what needs to be done first or trying to make some sense of like an order of operations? And what do you see as your kind of next steps in working toward this goal of a more democratic internet that we've been talking about? It's never one thing, isn't it? It has to be a whole movement. You know, look, it's not that hard. We need regulatory changes, and we've talked about some of them. We need a regulatory environment where a better public space can flourish. We need to rethink media, a media that's dedicated to doing this, both in terms of design and in terms of content. I don't think we can forget about content, by the way. 
I think content is important. It's not just going to be, oh, look, here's the magic algorithm. It's going to solve everything. It's about ideas and language. It always is as well. So if we get those three things right, I mean, that's three things, isn't it? It's regulation, it's media content, and it's better design. As long as we can do all that and fund all of it, I think we're fine. Right. <laughs> well, well you know, easy does actually, it. You know, I think we all diagnosed the problem quite well. And now... Uh-huh. Look, we need interventions as big as the creation of the BBC in the 1920s in Britain. We need interventions like a new deal for our public sphere. I mean, that's the size of the crisis. Why wouldn't it be a crisis this big if the whole industry has been upended with new technology? Of course, it's going to be that big a crisis. And and we need interventions that are as big and brave as that. So let's be big and brave. I mean, it's one of those moments. So I don't think there's one thing. I, I fear sometimes we, we, we think that there is kind of like, oh, here's a magic tweak to the algorithm. Everything's going to be fine now. There's this two sides to the technology thing, isn't there? There's the technology phobia. Oh, it's all technology. And I don't think it is. I think, you know, technology and culture are intertwined. And then there's the kind of like, well, then we can tweak it with a little tweak. I mean, even if we design beautiful online spaces, by the way, bad guys will come there and do terrible things there. So we will have to compete as well in ideas, in stories, in all those things which take on new forms, but of course are very old. Peter, we'll leave it there. We'll link to all of your work in in the show notes so folks can read more about your ideas and the the work that you're doing to help make uh, technology and the internet more democratic. So thank you very much for joining us today. All right, it's my pleasure. All right, so I hope it comes across. This guy is really interesting to listen to. He's a very engaging speaker to boot, but... I also found it really interesting, Michael, that he's really working to not just wring his hands about the negative impact of social media on democracy. He's actually trying to figure out what to be done about it. And there's something I find very hopeful and empowering about the way these things are put forward. It's not like we can just sit and just throw up our hands. There's stuff we can do and stuff that as a democratic public, we should do. You get the sense that policymakers and the public are flailing around a little bit right now, trying to figure out how to deal with large social media companies, how to deal with these problems when our laws, our institutions, and even our ways of thinking about large, powerful corporations is kind of stuck in the past a little bit, I think. We don't really have the tools for figuring out exactly what to do about this. Well, the idea that just as the corporations and industries of the 19th century had a right to make money, but did not have a right to pollute and undermine public goods, namely the environment, rivers, air, whatever. Right. They had externalities that could right. be regulated. Right. And, and so that's yeah. the argument. He basically says, you know, you want to send pictures of your grandkids and your dog and cat videos and whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. And if Facebook presents a good model for that and it makes money for them, there's nothing wrong with that either. But when the mechanisms of Facebook push our society in a way that makes democracy harder to sustain, then the democracy has a right to step up and say, you can't do that. Or at least to use mechanisms to mitigate those effects. It is, except here we're talking about regulating speech. 
Yes. Which has levels of protection well beyond companies have when it comes to producing goods. Right. And he takes the point, right? And he says that speech needs to be free, fair, and full, right? He would argue that if you don't accept that as a standard, then you are leaving democracy with one hand tied behind its back. It makes it impossible for us to sustain the kind of argument that we must have if democracy is going to function and function well. But, you know, when you think about this whole thing around the lie about the election, which I think we both agree is really very insidious and damaging to American (laughs) democracy and to the legitimacy of the Biden administration and to whatever it is that Biden might end up doing or trying to do. And I know this is a point you've made before, too, how much of this is just rooted in this weird (laughs) devotion to Donald Trump himself And the fact that Donald Trump has such a hold over a certain percentage of the Republican Party. But, uh, you know, the reason this is a problem is because of the Republican Party. The Republican Party, what's going on there right now, I think is unprecedented in my understanding of American political history. Consider what it's about. It's not around ideology at all. It's entirely around whether or not you accept the lie or you don't accept the lie. We talked about this a little bit in the first section. How is that not purely Orwellian? This, and and this is, I think, goes back to Pomerantum. The point about this indifference to truth is both a supply issue and a demand issue. It's not just that people are spewing it, but it's also that people, the broader population, is more accepting of it. People aren't stupid, but for whatever reason, people are receptive to the idea. You know, I think that's a really good point. I I think when I listen to people that are strong QAnon supporters speak sometimes, okay, I'm struck by the fact that these people seem like they're actually fairly bright, many Mm -hmm. of them. I mean, they are remembering better than I do and bringing together all kinds of connections that, you know, you got to really think about that to get from here to there. I mean, it also ties into this idea that People are just sort of disassociated Mm -hmm. from the kinds of groups and associations and organizations that used to bring them together a bit. They're just now sort of atomized, or I'm generalizing broadly, of course, but atomized in the social media world where who knows who they're connecting with. And he would argue that every generation has technology that they have to respond to. And I was listening to him. I was thinking part of the secularity is that Democracy makes demands on us as human beings that sometimes we're just, for whatever reason, we don't measure up to very well. And so we have to step up and reassert the standards for ourselves and for our society that make democracy possible. Anyway, so for the uh, McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.